We respectfully acknowledge the University of Arizona is on the land and territories of indigenous peoples. Today, Arizona is home to 22 federally recognized tribes, with Tucson being home to the Autumn and Yaqui. Committed to diversity and inclusion, the university strives to build sustainable relationships with sovereign native nations and indigenous communities through education offerings, partnerships, and community service. Welcome to this episode of the PA Path Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Lohenry, and we are glad you could join us as we seek to better understand the PA profession. I was the first PA to be president of organized medicine entity at the state level. I was president of the North Carolina Medical Society Foundation. Well, hello, and thank you for joining us today for episode 36. We speak with Dr. Justine Strand de Oliveira about her path to becoming a PA, her path to becoming a division chief at the Duke University PA program, and her new path to becoming a fiction writer and author of an upcoming novel, The Moon is Backwards. Justine has led for the profession at the state, national, and international levels, and her insights and candor provide for a great discussion. As always, you can find out more about our guests at the PAPathPodcast.com. It's so good to see you. You too. It's, I mean, it's kind of unbelievable how time flies, you know. I know, I know. I don't even remember how long it's been, but it seems like a couple years ago. And I know it's been a lot more than that. So it's uh, thank you so much for doing this. Sure, happy to. I'm excited to hear about your, your novel and stuff. Maybe we'll start with the, you know, your history as a PA and all that kind of following our usual format. But sure. I, I'm really, really excited about that. So I look forward to hearing more. And I can't wait to buy one. Oh, good. Even yeah. better. <laughs> yeah. Well, Justine, thank you so much for joining us today. I am so excited to see you after all these years and hear what you've been up to. Uh, but let's start with you sharing a little bit with our audience about your path to becoming a PA. How did you end up getting into this profession? Well, my first career was actually in theater, and it was the college level and local community theater in uh, Boulder, Colorado, University of Colorado. And I sort of decided to go a different direction, but I didn't know what direction, and took a job working for a doctor an internal medicine doctor, and I was what in those days they called a gal Friday, which means I, he taught me everything. I drew blood, gave injections, answered the phone, filed insurance claims, did the bookkeeping. And he was a teacher who loved having students, and he always had medical students and PA students. And I'd never heard of PAs, but he had PA students from Baylor and Yale. And I was really taken by the profession and just how accessible it was, potentially, in terms of entry compared to medical school. And I also had fallen in love with medicine, just the sort of mystery of it and the excitement of it and the puzzles and solving puzzles and diagnoses and all. And, and this doctor showed me a lot. He would call me in to show me, you know, different rashes or different conditions. So I learned a ton 
of medicine while I was with him. Sure. So that was kind of uh, the, the trigger for you. Then you started to look at uh, what programs were available at the time. And uh, where did you end up going? Well, it's very interesting because I was not from a family of great means. And I had really been on my own. One of the reasons I did okay at, at university was that I had a scholarship, a, like a tuition scholarship for acting. And I lived in, I, I was in Florida, so I, I ended up going up to University of Florida Gainesville to do all my prerequisites, because obviously if I was studying theater, I didn't have chemistry or biology or any of that. So it, it was quite a challenge for me, not having really studied that way or, or doing those kind of quantitative things. So... I went to University of Florida and I managed to kind of barely pass, but then I I started digging myself out of a hole when I learned how to study and I learned how to actually control my um, test anxiety. Mm -hmm. And um, so I, there was a PA program at, there's a really good PA program at Florida. And in those days, it was not quite as prestigious as the one now. But all I was going to do was apply to Florida because I was a state resident and I didn't have money to go anywhere. So my best friend said, well, where are you applying to PA school? And I said, Florida. And she goes, and? And I said, well, uh, what do you mean? I can only afford Florida. She goes, okay, listen you got to adjust your thinking here. What's the best PA program in the U.S.? And I said, Duke. She said, that's where you need to go. I was like, oh, my gosh, I'll never get into Duke. And she said, well, you never know if you don't try. So I ended up applying to six programs, interviewed at five, and was accepted at four. And I just loved Duke so much, just the way they treated us when we interviewed and so forth. It was just so relaxed and they gave us time with students on our own. And I just fell in love with Duke. And I said, okay, if, if I don't get into Duke, I can turn all the others down and then I'm going to apply you again apply. next year. Yeah. <laughs> but happily, because you really had to apply multiple times, you know, in those days, everybody would say, oh, you'll never get in. It's really hard. And I, I really vowed uh, at that time that, you know, I said, when they interviewed me one place and they said, if you become a PA, I said, excuse me, when I become a PA. That's great. And they accepted me, believe it or not, after being quite so saucy, you know, but, uh, <laughs> but I really, I really wanted to go to Duke and happily they accepted me the first time around. So, and it was, you know, nice. I really, I tell my friend that I owe her for that. Yeah. So you started at Duke and you ended at Duke in terms of your U.S. experience as a PA educator and a PA, correct? That's true. That's true. It's not something I ever <laughs> imagined doing, becoming an educator or whatever. But so I, shall I go just real quickly through where I worked? Yeah, please. Of course. When I graduated from Duke, my first position as a PA was at a migrant community health center in Colorado. Mm -hmm. And I was there for two years. And then I went overseas to Brazil 
to work for Westinghouse Corporation because they hired me because I was fluent in Portuguese. And I worked there for a couple of years. It, not, you, there are no PAs in Brazil. So I was practicing just taking care of the employees and their families and working with a, a satellite phone to the doctor in, uh, in Pittsburgh. And then came back and took a position in Austin, Texas in OBGYN. I was there for 10 years. And at the end of those 10 years, I had two young patients who were young women who um, I had taken care of during their pregnancy as, as teens. And they were really getting their lives together. They were um, just doing really well. And, and these two patients started having these very strange frequent infections and things. And this was 1991. And I diagnosed both of them with HIV. And they were the first in our practice. And they were the first, even in our huge um, multi-specialty clinic, they were the first cases. Because I think a lot of people really just weren't testing. They weren't thinking of it. Yeah. And I was devastated by this. I mean, it just broke my heart. And I really decided that I had to get into prevention. I had to get into public health. So I took a huge cut in pay <laughs> and took a position at the Durham County Health Department as a manager and working in the sexually transmitted infection clinic. And the HIV clinic was under my management, as was the lab, HIV testing, many other. It was a huge um, span of control. Mm -hmm. And I was there for two and a half, three years. And then I was recruited to Duke. They had a faculty position that opened and I just wasn't really thinking of, of working in education, but I was back in Durham and, you know, I ended up uh, going into education and became later head of the PA program. And I practiced in family medicine there one day a week, the whole time I was on the faculty. So, yeah, yeah. And you were the program director for a period of time, but you also rose in leadership at Duke. Okay. So what I, the role that I moved to, so I was PA program director, but also what's called division chief. Their okay. organization is a little different. And so I was PA division chief for a number of years, and that would be a chair or a dean, probably in other settings. But then I was promoted to vice chair for education for the Department of Family Medicine. So that was, I got the, you. yeah, so that was, uh, and there had not been uh, a PA in that kind of role. And a number of other things that I did during that time, I also had a secondary appointment in the School of Nursing, did a, my area of research as workforce, and did a number of studies and publications with my great colleagues at the School of Nursing, and also was an affiliate with the Global Health Center. Wow. Wow. So your academic career was really broad in terms of the things you were able to get involved with and, and make a difference on. It was very, very exciting. It was great. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about leadership because you're one of the first leaders that I had the opportunity to work with at PAEA and your leadership passion was evident from the moment we met. And I wonder if you can talk a little bit about kind of your evolution of thought as a leader from Duke and and moving on into PA education and also the PA profession. 
I think being in a leadership role, I think it's important to be the kind of person that you would want to report to and to be consistent ethically with your moral compass to back people up and to support people and to to help people grow, even if it means they leave the organization. And I think a lot of people are are afraid of that. But I just really believe in being good to people and uh, being honest with people when there are problems and not playing games. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Very direct. Uh, Well, yeah. I mean, direct without without being harsh. Yeah. So servant leadership is kind of a Greenleaf talks about servant leadership. It sounds like you saw your role as a leader was to really raise those around you up to make the situation where you're supporting them for them to become their own successful stories. And as you said, you know, it's hard to lose good people, but each time you do, it's another opportunity to bring in somebody else that you can help mentor and support. Is that, is that accurate? Yeah, I think it is. And I think that it also makes your part of the organization a place that people want to be. You know, I, I always encourage people to to talk to everyone in in the division, in the in the program to to get their honest take about what it was like to be there. So it's hard. You know, if you're really doing leadership, you're going to make decisions that people don't like. Probably the hardest one I had to make at Duke was to say we needed to expand the program. Mm -hmm. And by expanding the program, we got our own building and the building was off campus. And I mean, it's a wonderful building. Everybody loves it now. But it was like, oh, how dare you take us off campus? What a terrible thing. And I said, well, you know, okay, show me the error of my thinking. Where's the real estate here on campus that I haven't noticed? (laughs) that someone is going to give us because, you know, we're not going to get a great facility. I mean, our, our situation was just not ideal in terms of our location prior to that. We didn't have an identity and we didn't have adequate space, but in order to do that, we had to expand. And I really was bullish on the profession and our, our ability to contribute to access to care. And I felt it was the right thing to do, but honestly, nobody, Nobody liked the idea. Nobody on the faculty. Yeah, that's not the most popular decision in PA leadership. But I think your point is well well made in the sense that if you have a really good product in any other business in the world, you're going to expand the production of that product. Right, right. So, and, and to do that effectively, you've got to build more warehouses. So you essentially were staying ahead of the curve and saying, look, we, we can make a difference in the communities of rural and, and urban North Carolina and beyond, but we're only producing X amount per year. Let's increase it. So we have more money coming in so we can expand the resources we have. Right. Exactly. Yeah. 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 That, those are hard. Those are hard calls to make. I agree. <laughs> They're never popular because of the perception of clinical rotations. Well, that's the rate limiting step in the equation. And that's that's a tough one because you really can't yeah. short that. You can't short clinical experience. And and every everyone has the same idea. Everyone's expanding. I mean, it's like an amoeba. Sooner or later it gets too big to to continue growing. So it's 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 a real challenge. And so as you look back to your leadership roles uh, as a PA leader, what what are the things you're most proud of? Um, 
Well, uh, stepping out of my comfort zone and agreeing to be to serve as president of the Texas Academy of PAs back in the day when we really had a horrible practice environment in the 1980s. And uh, I ended up being thrust into a lobbying role to lobby for indirect supervision and prescriptive privileges. And that was just one real exciting adventure. <laughs> oh, I, I would imagine. <laughs> it was that. And uh, I think in, on, in so many situations, I during my time at Duke and in North Carolina, I sort of became a go-to person when they wanted APA in a role, which, you know, is, is an honor. Don't get me wrong, yes. but I was the first PA to be president of organized medicine entity at the state level. I was president of the North Carolina Medical Society Foundation. And during wow. my time, my time in that role, we raised... $18 million to support our community practitioner program, which was a loan repayment program for doctors, PAs, and nurse practitioners who served in medically underserved areas that didn't have uh, National Health Service Corps or other options for them. And that was another adventure and just very, very rewarding. And so it became a, a self-funded program that exists to this day, when in fact, when I came on board, it was uh, sort of spent down a previous endowment. So, and there are a number of other sorts of roles like that. I mean, I was called upon to speak. Uh, I was a keynote speaker at a AAMC Association of American Medical Colleges meeting. You know, things that are like scary. <laughs> yeah. Scary, but, but, you know, you just have to rise to the occasion. So it was, it was a, all those years were, stressful they were exciting challenging um and each thing that you try to accomplish if you're able to do it it gives you the courage to do the next thing yeah uh, one of the things I've been very fortunate to experience in my leadership is to serve with many very strong leaders who were women and uh, you had Ruth Balwig and I talked about this back in uh, December uh, you know when you're kind of at the cutting edge of the PA profession and you're a woman kind of navigating in that male-dominated medical society that can be challenging I wonder if you could give some uh, insights into how you successfully navigate that because clearly if you were leading that organization you figured out the secret sauce well I, I mean I think probably the main thing is to just not take yourself too seriously and not get too upset when things don't go the way you had hoped and to be ready to compromise and maybe you know I really think half a loaf is better than none and I was in a number of situations where half a loaf was what we had to accept and I remember a, a PA had moved to Texas and called me, you know, my number was out there as president and said, these laws in this state are so stupid. And, you know, I said, oh, well, tell me more. You know, I sort of wondered why the person had moved to Texas if it was so stupid, but I'd done the same thing. So I couldn't really point a finger. And I said, after... Uh, they told me what they thought. I said, well, you didn't see how stupid it used to be. 
it's stupid now, but it was really stupid before. Absolutely. You yeah. know, because, you know, we couldn't, we could get prescriptive rights, but only in medically underserved areas. Okay. Okay. It's I'm a stepping stone. For that. It, it was, and it, um, yeah. it got a lot of criticism, but, you know, people in those areas, PAs in those areas were able to prescribe and it helped people in community health centers and, you know, live to fight yeah, another I'm- day. Sure. And I imagine it gave you data, really strong data to show safety down the road when you went for full prescriptive authority. Yes. And the other thing it showed was that there was one rural health clinic in Texas and it was going dwindling. And two years after the law was passed, there were almost 200 because the law required a half-time PA or MP to be on staff in order to get cost-based reimbursement under the Rural Health Clinics Act. And they couldn't do it without the PAs and MPs being able to prescribe. So, Yeah. Over the course of the career that I've known you, you've always had a passion for international work. And and you've, you know, I think you kind of alluded to your experience uh, as a PA early in your career and also you're fluent in Portuguese. And and you've always been looking. I remember you were looking strongly at Puerto Rico when we were on the board together. You are obviously living in Portugal now. So could you maybe share a little bit about that passion for international work and where you see the PA profession moving these days? Uh, Well... I think personally, I, I love international experiences just because they're so enriching and exciting and challenging and you learn so many new things. And I've always liked languages. I've always done languages because I love them. I'm fluent in Portuguese and Spanish and I've used my Spanish in all my clinical work over the years, but I, 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 it's sort of like I, I always wanted to have a way to put together all the different things, my international interests, my language interests, public health, medical health professions, education, and so forth. So a great opportunity that was presented, and this was through the University of Washington in Seattle, through my friend Ruth Balwig, was an opportunity to work as a, a lead technical advisor on a program in Mozambique. And Mozambique is uh, southeastern Africa, just um, north of South Africa. And it's a former Portuguese colony. So it's Portuguese speaking country. So Very I did nice. faculty development. Yeah, I did faculty development there. And I also it was called on a couple of years later to head up uh, a curriculum revision for this group called the Technicos de Medicina, who are basically, I call them PA analogs. So, mm-hmm. you know, we can't call them PAs in the same, they're not the same thing as a PA in the U.S. Um, but that was a, a, a great opportunity. And I'm mostly retired, but I uh, have a faculty appointment here at the medical school. And I do a little bit of teaching, helping with publications, evaluations, uh, writing tests, exam questions, things like that. So I think it's an interesting question. I, I often am contacted by PA students or fairly recent graduates who are interested in doing international work and actually functioning clinically, practicing clinically in other countries in most cases is a non-starter. Now, I, I will mention that during, so I, I retired from Duke and I went 
I was recruited to Bart's in the London to help them start a new PA program. And during my time there, I practiced one day a week in what's called GP surgery, which is family medicine, primary care clinic uh, in East London in, in a very diverse and medically underserved area. Just a wonderful experience. So that is maybe the one exception has been the UK has uh has historically allowed PAs from the U.S. to practice there. As they get licensing organized, uh, that will look somewhat different and probably a little more restricted. But other than that, places, we can't just go somewhere and practice, nor should we if it's not within the legal framework. So I think that most PAs are better off setting their sights on helping with capacity building. In other words, using our skills to help lift up professionals to help improve the capacity to provide care in some of these middle and low income countries. Sure. Are there other things that concern you about the movement of PAs in other countries or is your sense that there's a lot for us to learn from the way they do things? Well, I I think the main thing is we Americans sometimes, because of our belief in exceptionalism, (laughs) feel that the way we do things is the right way. And it's certainly the right way for the U.S., but it's important the culture, the healthcare system, what is the epidemiology, what what are the community needs, I I think we need to be very humble and be open to understanding that different models work in different places. I mean, one example was, you know, I thought I had a lot of humility that I brought to the project in Mozambique, but I remember talking about, oh, shouldn't we do some work with the frail elderly? And they looked at me and they said, we don't have frail elderly. We have people in their 50s who have trouble with mobility. But it's just not the same where people live so long and they have so many resources. Like in the U.S., they live into their 80s and become frail. That's not common. The reality. Yeah. I mean, it's just I my whole thinking was was wrong. And then at one point I I said about the curriculum, well, shouldn't we say here refer to doctor? And one of the public health guys looked at me and he said, well, Justine, if you say that, then what you're really saying is go home and die because. You can't, there's no doctor to send the person to. And I, you know, I don't think that's necessarily true. I don't want to, I don't want to paint an overly grim picture of Mozambique. I mean, they, they have developed more medical schools and I think they've, they've really increased their capacity since that time. But my point is not, you know, a point about this particular country. It's just our point of view really doesn't fit. And a lot of times we don't recognize, you know, my own experience practicing in the UK, which has national health service and also uh, being a patient here and teaching um, at a medical school. We, you do, we just don't realize how many things we do in the U S that we really don't need to do that we do just because of billing, like yeah. doing all kinds of vital signs. They don't do that anywhere else in the world. But you can't have a level three visit if you don't do it. That's true. So, <laughs> I, true. I mean, it's it, it, it. There's so many things that we spend a lot of money on, and 
And I've really adjusted my thing. I've, I've adjusted my thinking about my own healthcare, you know, uh, and learn to just sort of roll with uh, with how they do things here. And they and Portugal has a lot of challenges to its healthcare system, but anybody who becomes a resident is covered by it. Wow. So, yeah. So I at least I know that if an emergency happens, then I'm taken in an ambulance to the Faro Hospital, the big city here nearby. I won't go bankrupt. Yeah, I won't yeah. have surprise it's, billing. It just it'll be I'm covered under the healthcare system. I hope that doesn't happen, but it's a really different sense you have living yeah, in another yeah. place. Yeah, totally different perspectives. I've seen that from some of my colleagues in other countries where they just they just kind of chime in and say, you know, the different way isn't always the bad way. And, That's right. You know, especially. <laughs> Especially in this country, we love to argue about the National Health Service in other countries, but, you know, I've had several guests on the podcast that have demonstrated that they still have a very good living, despite maybe paying slightly higher taxes for the relief of free education and free health care. Yes. So yes. We, need, yes. we need to listen more and stop talking here in this country more. Yeah. <laughs> oh, well, let's let's shift gears one last time and talk about your new career, because uh, I'm so excited to learn about this. So you are now uh, writing or actually have finished your first novel and it's coming out in July. The moon is backwards. Can you tell us about kind of where you uh, was it your medical writing that led to your passion for this? And and uh, tell us about your novel, if you don't mind. Oh, thank you. Um, thanks for asking. It wasn't really that my medical writing led me to write fiction, but that I had a couple of stories I wanted to tell that that were fiction stories. And so I think my medical writing helped me learn some about writing, but writing fiction is a whole different deal. So I took a, a course on writing novels at um, City University London, and my teacher from that time is continues to be my mentor and editor, and I continue with the writing circle. But the story that I wanted to tell was about Brazil. And so my novel is historical fiction. It's set in mid 20th century Brazil, amid the construction of the new capital called Brasilia and the subsequent military dictatorship. And the main character is a, a young woman. And basically we follow the arc of her life from age seven to uh, in the 1940s through the 1980s. Um, wow. And it, it's being released in paperback and ebook. And I actually plan on narrating my own audiobook. Um, oh, neat. And I'm having it. <laughs> yeah, it's very exciting. And I am having it translated by a translator in Brazil because even though I'm fluent, it's a whole different deal. It's a whole literary process to. Sure you know, to shift to another language. So I hope that'll be ready for release also in July. And so I'm very excited about that. And then I'm uh, working on a couple more. Um, I'm what I call my palate cleanser because uh, fiction that's historical is quite a bit of work and research. So yeah. my my current work in progress, the working title is Murder at Margrave. And it's a murder mystery set in an academic medical center. Oh. And 
and I'm doing <laughs> <Great>. it. <laughs> oh, yes. I'm having so much fun. My writing circle says they could just hear me laughing as I write it. <laughs> as they read what I wrote, they, they can hear me laughing. So that's fun. And I'm working on the research for a new historical fiction set in Brazil in the 1860s. And the working title of that is Americana. And it's about a group of people uh, who were part of the Confederacy in the southern U.S., and after the Civil War, they ended up moving to Brazil and starting this whole community. It's a true mm. story and very exciting. So I get to, to research all that. And then on top of all that, I hope to write my memoir, which uh, my working title for that is Mid-Century Modern. <laughs> <laughs> That's wow. That is keeping you busy. So, so you're in the same time that you're researching one novel, you're still writing another one and, and you have to kind of separate that out and shift gears. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's just a different thing because the whole research process takes quite a while and I don't want to, to not be writing during this time. Plus I'm part of this writing group class and we're called upon, to, we have to submit an extract of our writing um, every few weeks. So, yeah. That's good. It keeps you, keeps you on track then. Yeah. Yeah, it's wonderful. Wow. That is so exciting. So that has been kind of your new passion now that you've had a chance to dial down on the PA education part and, and the leadership part, it sounds like. Yes. Yes. Yeah, yes. Wonderful. And we're um, enjoying our life here. I do some gardening and we're sort of in a semi-rural area, but not far from major city uh, here in the hills of Algarve, which is southern Portugal. And just we've met a lot of new friends and I've been involved. We are part of a, a group that supports classical music and we have concerts every month here nearby. And that's just a wonderful uh, variety of things to do. And my husband is an avid cyclist, and this is like a, a place where crows cycle, so he just loves it here. And so we, you know, we stay busy. We, we were locked down here. We moved into this house a week before lockdown, and lockdown wow. here was serious. Yeah. yeah. Lockdown here was very, very serious. They were, they were wonderful. They would come by with these audio trucks. And they would say in Portuguese and then English, stay in your house, do not come out only to go buy groceries. If you are having problems and you need help, if you need food or if you're just lonely, please call blah, blah, blah. It was wow. just, it's just a whole different culture. It's just a whole different culture. Neighbors are really friendly. People help each other. Our neighbors are always bringing us produce from their gardens wow. and, you know, invite us to go into the orchard and pick as much fruit as we want. It's, it's really the Garden of Eden. <laughs> That's wonderful. That's wonderful. Well, I when you do release the novel, when it's out, please let us know and we'll put it on our website. And I can't wait to uh, to get a copy and give it to my daughters and, and uh, read it myself. Great. That's wonderful. Thanks so much. Thank you, Justine. Take care and have a great summer. I want to thank our guest, Dr. Strandy Oliveira, for her time and insights. It was so incredibly interesting to see where she is heading in her retirement from the profession. And we hope you keep an eye out for her novel this July. 
In fact, we will be highlighting it in our socials when it hits the stands. Tune in next week as we speak with Dr. Kevin Shore from the University of Kentucky. Kevin talks with us about his program, his national leadership, and his music career. Until next time, we wish you success with whatever path you are walking in life. And thank you for joining us. The purpose of this podcast is to provide news and information on the PA profession and is for informational purposes only. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and guests and do not necessarily reflect the official position or policy of the University of Arizona.